He knows nothing about sports and especially baseball. But all the guys in his neighborhood, they love baseball. They're baseball mavens. They play baseball and they know all the facts. He doesn't want to be the odd kid out, which he already is. So when his guys are talking about the Sultan of Swat, the great Bambino, he lies and says he knows who they're talking about. But he has no idea. And this comes up to haunt him later when he gets a ball from his stepdad because they've got a pickup game. Now, he knows the ball means something to his stepdad, but he's not sure why. And so this gets him into trouble, and you'll see part of this here in the clip. Something else has got their ball. That wasn't my ball! Dad's father gave it to him. Babe Ruth signed that ball. Babe Ruth! We gotta get that ball back. You got any bright ideas? Initiate retrieval section number one. Power. <laughs> yeah. uh, see, everybody that's seen it is laughing, right? It's, uh, it's a very fun movie. It was one of my kids' favorites. Yeah, you, we can go to the... Go to the ball now, yeah. The trouble with this was uh, Scotty knew that the ball meant something to his stepdad, but he had no idea why. He knew the ball was there, but he didn't know the value of the ball. And that's where the trouble came in. You know, there's an old saying that goes, you can know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And that sort of comes in big time in the message this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians 3 in just a minute. But if you talk to most Christians today and just ask, do you know what you have? Do you know what you have simply because you're a Christian? If you're in Christ, you're saved. Jesus is your Savior. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Do you know what you have? Now, many Christians don't. In fact, I'd say most of us don't. But maybe we've read enough of the Bible and we say, well, I know some of the things that are true of me. And and you might say, I know some of the things I have. The second question is, do you know the value of what you've been given? Because even if you've read the Bible a little bit and you say, well, I know some things are true, it doesn't mean you know the value of what you have. But if we know what we've been given and we know the value, then there's something that transpires in our life, which is what Paul's prayer goes to this morning. And it's that you end up with this life-transforming experience if you know what you have and you know the value of it. And that's where Paul takes us in his prayer this morning. So we're going to be in Ephesians 3 again. And this is the Christ overall series. Maybe. I'm not having any luck, guys. There we go. Thanks. So if you remember in chapter 1, chapter 1 ended with this prayer. And the prayer was the knowledge of God that we might know things. We said if you've eaten apple pie, you have a knowledge of apple pie you don't have if you've just read the recipe. It was about knowing. In the prayer in chapter 3, it centers on knowing God's love in Christ, but it's towards this very specific end. It's if you know what you have and you know the value, it ends up doing two things primarily. It ends up filling you up with the very life of God and then that ends up fulfilling the mystery of Christ Paul's talked about this throughout, which is that God is glorified. So that the two ends to which Paul's prayer goes this morning is that believers are filled up knowingly, consciously with the very life of God. And out of that, then God is glorified. And that's the end to which all things go anyway, that God is glorified. And 
Let me just preemptively say this. Ephesians is considered the high-water mark of epistolatory theology, of the theology that you'll see in the epistles in the New Testament. It's the high-water mark. So this is not a one, two, three, how to make your life better. This is not a financial plan to get out of debt. This requires something on our part of thinking about this deeply, more deeply than we usually do. Okay, so this is not light stuff. This demands a little something from us. So we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from the ESV, and that's page 977. I'm getting nothing from this. Thanks. I'm just going to let you forward me, okay? Um, Through the end of the chapter, verse 21. So the text, thank you. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason... Paul's referring back. He's actually referring back to chapter 2. We'll catch up on this in a little bit. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Next slide so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. And by the way, as we read through this, notice he keeps saying that and so that. Uh, You may have uh, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we said in uh, chapter 1, by the way, these two prayers, Ephesians 1 and 3, these are kind of high water marks. Next slide. High water marks as far as um, patterns of prayer in the New Testament. Are we advancing, Aaron? Next slide. My clicker does not work. So, are you okay? Thank you. Yeah. One, we said uh, in chapter one that Paul prays. He's characterized by it. It's a way of life. And he, he, he di- diverts to the same thing here. He says, when I think about these things, I pray. And here he says, I fall down on my knees before the Father And I pray. This is interesting to me. It brings up this whole uh, issue of posture in prayer. Now, there were some guys that were listening to this letter when it was read or they read it for the first time. And when Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father, I think some memories are coming to their mind. Because the elders in Ephesus, way back in Acts chapter 20, had a similar experience to this with Paul. And they would have been in the audience that got this letter. And back then, if you remember, Paul's heading to Jerusalem in Acts 20. He doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus, so he goes right on by. But he asks the elders from there to join him down the coast in Miletus. And they do. And so he tells them, hey, I'm not going to see you again. He warns them about dangers that are going to come from their own group. He says, my hands are free of the blood of all men because I've told you everything God meant for me to tell you. And when they were all done, and they're sad on one hand, they won't see him again, it says that they bow together and they pray. And that's the same thing he says here. That same group's probably thinking, that's what we did when we met with Paul. And here he says, I bow before the Father as I pray for you. 
we're not saying that there's a right or a wrong posture when we pray. If you're driving the car, if you're working in the garden, if you're going down the road doing whatever you're doing, you can pray, right? We probably pray all day, all the time, totally apart from posture. But the truth is, too, we're physical beings. And posture reflects what's going on inside of us. So if we're free to pray on our own, that we're just praying, we're not doing something else, posture can become significant. So when Paul says, I kneel, kneel is a posture of humility, isn't it? He's bowing before his superior. He's humbling himself physically because he's humble spiritually and he's acknowledging before God, you're God and we're not. And we need something from you. You've already given us all these riches, but sometimes we don't even know what we have And other times, if we know it by name, we don't know its value anyway. So when Paul goes to pray for them, he says, I kneel humbly before the Father because we need something that only He can give us. So sometimes posture is important. Do you guys find uh, that you pray differently? Sometimes attitude, sometimes fervency, but sometimes physically. If I'm in a place where I really need God to come through, I have a fervency that I may not otherwise. And I may be bowing on my knees because it's a special time and it's not, I'm not just conversationally talking to God about this or that, but I am pleading because I need something or someone else needs something. And I may clasp my hands and I may get on my knees because it reflects the fervency or the attitude of my heart going on inside. There's another thing you see in Scriptures. You see it in 1 Timothy 2. Verse 8, but the Jews, it was common for the Jews to pray with their hands out, Jewish men especially, hands out or hands up. Hands out or hands up. The hands out thing is this, God, you're the supplier and I'm the needy one and I'm placating you and I'm showing you that my hands are empty. Whatever I'm coming before you for, I don't have it. And so my hands out are a way of saying, God, my hands are empty You have what I need and I'm placating. I'm the supplicant. Lord, would you fill my hands? Would you provide what I don't otherwise have? So it's supplication. My hands are out. The other thing is my hands are up. And this is significant. And this is what you see in 1 Timothy 2. Why are my hands up? This is the other thing. Have you ever seen Johnny take a cookie from the cookie jar? Or maybe you were Johnny and you did this. And dad or mom walks in and you're not supposed to have the cookie. What does your hand do? It goes behind your back because you're hiding something. So when you come before God and you raise your hands, you're saying, Lord, I'm hiding nothing. I'm out in the open before you. Nothing is behind my back. I'm out in the open. Honesty, transparency, that's what I'm bringing. So hands up. You know, Paul said in that prayer in Acts 20, He said, my hands are clean of the blood of all men. I don't know if he was holding them up then or not, because he had fulfilled his responsibility. So he could say, my hands are clean. I haven't held back anything I was supposed to do. So posture and prayer sometimes for us is a big deal. And Paul says here, I'm bowing as I pray for you and for the church. I'm humbly petitioning God because we need to know what we have and we need to know its value. He also says this, he says, I'm bowing to God the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name. If you read commentaries, theologians are all over the place on the significance of this phrase. 
But we miss something in the English that the guys reading the Greek had. When you read here in the Greek, God the Father, the Greek is pater. From whom every family, the Greek is patria. So the name for a family is the father. The, the families derive their identity from the father. Feminism aside, you simply can't miss what God has done. Families derive their identity from their father. It's paternal. This is not, has nothing to do with abusive or, or authoritarianism. It's simply the way things are. And it's because all things go back to God as father. So you and I have a common heritage physically, don't we? So we all, we all go back through moms and dads. We all go back to Noah. If you believe the biblical record up through chapter 11 of Genesis, we all go back to Noah. And then from Noah, we all go back to Adam. And where does Adam go back to? He goes back to God the Father. So physically, Paul says, all of us eventually go back. Every family on earth always traces its lineage all the way back to God the Father. God the Father is our common source. That's one thing. Also, if you read epistles like Romans and Galatians, because remember the audience that Paul's writing to, Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles, but they're the new kid on the block. They're Scotty Smalls. They're not sure what the value of that baseball is. So Paul's really speaking to them. And he says to them, guys, he says this in Romans and Galatians 2, your common spiritual father is Abraham. You may not be a Jew physically, ethnically. Your physical lineage may not go back to Abraham, Father Abraham. But if you've believed in Abraham's God, you share his paternal line by faith. You're a Jew, Paul says, not ethnically, but because you share Abraham's faith. So to this church that's new to this whole concept of Jews and Gentiles are no longer separate, but they're together, Paul says, when I'm praying, I'm praying to the father of us all. We all share the same father. Father Abraham is our father of faith, humanly speaking now. But God is our common father now. It doesn't matter what background you came from, Jew or Gentile. And last, Paul prays here in the way you normally see. Prayer is a very personal thing, right? Because it's conversation. It's basic foundation. Prayer is conversation. So we talk to God. And that may look a little different for all of us. But Paul here prays to God the Father in the name of God the Son by the Holy Spirit. And that's the normal pattern for prayer in the Bible. I pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus. Do you remember in John's Gospel? You'll pray in my name. When you pray, pray in my name. When we say in Jesus' name, we're praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit because all of us have the Holy Spirit within us as believers. That's the pattern for prayer in the New Testament. It's the norm. So that's what we normally do. Now, I pray sometimes to Jesus. And it might be just like this. Jesus, help me in that moment. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus, help me. Or sometimes, you ever do this? Sometimes I pray to the Holy Spirit too. And it's usually along these lines. Lord, Holy Spirit, I am so sorry I grieved you and quenched you again. Lord, thanks for staying in me when I wouldn't. If I had the option of living with myself, I'd say no thanks, I'd go the other way. But the Spirit's still here. So we're not saying we can't address the Spirit or the Son conversationally in prayer, but the norm is that we're praying to God the Father in the authority or in the name of Jesus, and we're doing so by the Holy Spirit. That's the norm, and that's the pattern you see here for Paul in chapter 3. 
And guys, this is uh, mentioning verse 14. When he said, for this reason, he's looking back to chapter 2. Your study sheet, I think it's on the bottom of page 1, has the things that were articulated there. We're not going to repeat those this morning. But he said, when I'm thinking about what God has done for you Gentiles, the mystery of Christ, which is the church, Jews and Gentiles together, verse 1 of chapter 3, he started the same same reason. He said, for this reason, and then you remember he digressed for 13 verses. And he said, oh, and by the way, let me tell you, I'm the messenger of the mystery, and the mystery is this. It's what I've told you about. Christ's mystery, the mystery of the church. That was a digression, but he picks up the same thought right here at verse 14. He goes back to chapter 2 and says, for this reason, this is why I'm praying. I'm praying because of all the things that you have from chapter 2. But the question is, do they know what they have and do they know the value of what they have? Uh, can you give me the next slide? Have you guys watched game shows? TV, daytime game shows? It's like, yeah, you're, some of you are not fessing up. Some of you are going, uh, what's the right answer? You know, back in the day, I've seen some. Do you find it kind of ridiculous, like I do, the degree of glee and excitement and enthusiasm that the people on these shows have because they might win a vacation? Or they did win a car? And, you know, the music thrills at the end and all their friends and relatives from from the audience come out and join them and they're hugging up and down and they're jumping up and down and you're like, really? Wow. Or, or how about this? Or if you're, you know, if you're a sports fan and your team wins the Big 12 or maybe they might make it to the Sweet 16, is not the degree of glee, excitement, enthusiasm out of all proportion? Don't you think? You know, because really what happens? So you win the vacation, you take the vacation, that's gone. You get the car, the car rusts and wears out. And guys, your favorite basketball teams, the best players turn pro. They leave early and that's that. So what about the glee and the enthusiasm? You know, out of all proportion there, but is there a sense if we know what we have and if we know the value of what we have, Christians are the game show winners of all time. We're the, we get the ultimate prize. But the question again is, do you know what you have? And do you know its value? Because if you don't, you live life very, very differently. We live life like the game show winner. Life is about here and now. As a Christian, and guys, this this is one of the acid tests of your faith. If what you know and believe doesn't work in the third world, it's probably not true. Do you know what I mean? If you teach health and wealth here and it works because we're first world, and you have science and medicine and all that, and you preach health and wealth in the third world, it doesn't work. And that's because it's not true. So the acid test, can a Christian here rejoice because they know what they have and they know the value of what they have, just like a Christian in the third world? Absolutely. Because it's true. But the challenge for us is to know it and know what that looks like. Uh, next slide, thanks. So what we're going to do, and this is the lion's share of our time, and I'll try not to run long. I forgot to turn my watch on, and that is always a dangerous thing. So, uh, look at verse 16. And what, what I want to show you is that there's a progression here. That Paul's prayer goes point by point by point by point to two ends. He has two goals in mind when he starts praying. Chuck Swindoll has a helpful commentary, popular level, Galatians and Ephesians. 
he says he thinks in this in this uh, list that Paul's actually praying for your psychological, mental, spiritual, and emotional well-being. And I think there's truth in that, but that's not the line we're going to proceed on this morning. We're going to proceed that Paul's saying there's a progression here that he wants us to get because there's ends to which all his prayers lead. So look at verse 16. Paul says he's going to pray that God fills us up with himself and that the mystery of Christ brought to its fullness actually glorifies God. So, verse 16 says, Paul prays, according to the riches of God's glory, may He grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So, Paul's first prayer is that you have strength. It's by the Spirit and it's in your inner being. Inner being is a synonym for your new nature. If you're not saved, you don't have an inner being. This is the language of Romans 7 also. There's an old me and there's a new me in your inner being. This isn't physical. This is an external. The weakest, oldest Christian can have tremendous strength in their inner being. And Paul's strength is for, Paul's prayer is for strength in their inner being. Paul basically says, I don't want you to be like a newborn. We have little ones in here, don't we? And they don't have a lot of strength, do they? Except their lungs and their vocal cords. Those are usually pretty good. Right? But a newborn, is there anything wrong with a newborn? Nothing wrong at all, right? But there's this, there's this progression that we expect them to grow up physically. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Paul's prayer here is that Christians would grow up spiritually in strength. But guys, if we lack spiritual strength, do you know there's things that you can't know, you can't lay hold of? You can't act on because you don't have the spiritual internal strength to manage them or to handle them. You know, if I'm young, I can't pick up the weights. But if I get older, I can pick them up easily. And the thought is that spiritually we are energized because we've matured. We have a grown-up kind of strength that enables us to enter into the things Paul's talking about. If we lack this, we can't keep going in this progression. We've got to have some kind of maturity, some kind of inner strength if we're going to get where Paul wants us to go on this. And by the way, he says the strength is from the Spirit. We don't, there are things we can do to aid this. You know, if you're physically training, you eat right, you exercise, maybe you take vitamin pills or supplements, you do things that help your spiritual strength advance. If we're meeting with the Lord, if we're praying, if we're meeting with other Christians, those are things that help this occur, but it's the Holy Spirit who's producing it. We're sort of in a training program, but the Spirit is actually producing the strength. This isn't something we can do on our own. So Paul's first prayer is that, guys, that you'll have a, a grown-up spiritual kind of strength inside. And he says he prays that so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Strength, so Christ dwells in your heart through faith. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably say Christ already lives in me, right? We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus' prayer was the Spirit would come. He'd bring the life of the Father and the Son into us. And you say, well, we've already got that, so why do we need strength? But the word dwell here is important. Dwell there in the Greek means a permanent residence. A permanent residence. This is interesting, isn't it? For some of us, we're focused on the Lord. We're meeting with Him. We're doing the things we know. And we'd say, generally, Christ is the center of my being. I'm guided by Him. I'm informed by His Word. Christ is my... I'm Christ's home. He lives inside me. 
I'm his permanent dwelling. For others of us, Jesus is like the salesman. He knocks on the door and we say, well, I have time for you or I don't. I'm busy about other things. Come back tomorrow. That's the difference here. It's this sense of permanence that you have spiritual strength in order to make sure that Christ is at the center of who you are. Because without that initial and growing spiritual strength, you'll just remain a carnal Christian. Some people dispute this whole term carnal Christian, but Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. And basically, you can be a Christian and not grow much. In fact, have you ever done this? Have you ever, maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you met somebody, let's say 10 or 20 years later, you were Christians together, and you meet them and you think, man, have they grown. They know so much, they're, they're mature, they're helpful, they're serving. And you meet someone else and you say, what happened? They still claim Christ. Why did one grow so much and one didn't? Well, that's this progression. I'm, I'm bonded in Christ. I have spiritual strength. Christ is at the center of who I am. That's the thought here. Christ in me, I am Christ's home. And he says there it's by faith. Again, please don't misunderstand that we simply work up our will and we say, Jesus, you're the center of my life. It's by faith. We take God at his word. Guys, all of God's work in us and through us is by faith. We trust God. We take him at his word. We act on his word. That's all this is talking about here. He also says, uh, next slide, Aaron. So you get the sense of progression, strength, so that you are in fact Christ's permanent home, His dwelling place. So that, verse 17, you'll be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. Now Paul's mixing his metaphors here, isn't he? You know, a tree, and that's the concept here, a tree is a popular image in the Scriptures. If you think of Psalm 1, I want to be like a tree planted by streams of living water. I'm a tree, and the nutrition there is the water. Well, here Paul says, you're like a tree, but this is the deal. It's not about the water you're around. It's about the soil you're in. And he says here, the soil is God's love. The soil he's talking about is is God's very nature of love. Are you rooted and grounded in God's love? And think about this for just a minute. Wherever you plant that tree, whatever it becomes, whatever it does, whatever fruit it bears, is coming from the ground that it's planted in. So you've got to have water and you've got to have the soil. So it's pulling all, all that it is, all that it's become, is coming from the ground that it's planted in. And so Paul says, you need to make sure that the soil your life is planted in is God's love. This is significant. The soil you're planted in is God's love. If you look at your life and say, I'm not a loving person, and I don't mean emotionally here, you can be a sappy person. You can be an emotional person and be a very unloving person. So it's not emotion. Remember that biblically, love is a commitment to do what's in the best interest of someone else. Am I a loving person means do I speak the truth in love? Am I committed? Am I there? That's love, biblically. So if someone looks at the leaves of your life, what do they see? Are you a green tree? Are you a fruit-bearing tree? Are you a dry, shriveled tree? As far as love, the quality of God's life, Paul describes here as love, is that true of you? If it's not, you're not rooted and grounded in the love of God. It's not happening. And remember, this is a progression. This is another step along the way. The other simile here he gives is your house. 
And your house is built on the foundation that is God's love. So everything when you build up, it all has the stability. It's all influenced by the rock stability of God's agape, persevering, committed love. So if somebody looks at your house, are the walls bowed and cracked? Because the foundation's inadequate. That's the other metaphor here. So is my life, am I drawing who and what I am out of God's love? That'll show. Is my life built on the foundation of God's love? That will show as well. This is that next step in the progression. And this is the thing, guys. You know, Jesus said they'll know you're Christians by the love you have for each other. Luke's Gospel says that near the time of the second coming, the love of many will grow cold. If Christians aren't displaying the love of God in Christ, guys, we have nothing to boast of. And in fact, I think this is the critical thing for the church today. I just think we're not very loving. Generally, the church is not a loving place because we're not rooted in the love of God. You know, we've talked about uh, church membership, and I know it comes off different ways to different people, but all we're talking to people about is a loving commitment to each other. It's just this. Um, most of you know, and, and this is old uh, history for many of you, but in the early days of the church, I don't remember how many years we've been together, and leadership looked quite a bit different there than, than it does now. But things weren't going that well, and it was a hard, hard road. Our first, I don't know, seven years maybe, it was a tough, tough road. And we, we had a leadership meeting at the Hunt's house. And we said, it's a hard road. We're not sure God's actually in this thing. Uh, maybe it's time to fold up our tents and, and just disband. And we were this close from saying we're done. And somebody said, well, if we stop meeting as a church, what will happen to Pat and Evelyn? And Pat and Evelyn were two dear gals in our church. Uh, this church was the only place Pat had ever known and as a Christian. And Evelyn, Pat's mom, was an elderly gal who'd found a home here. She was valued and treasured by others, and she had a home here. And people are like, going, oh, yeah, man, that's right. What, what will happen to Pat and Evelyn if we quit meeting? Now, I kid you not, the only reason this church continued at that point was love for Pat and Evelyn. It's the only reason. The only reason Lion Lamb is here 20 years is because we said, what do you do with Pat and Evelyn? You can't check out on them. See, and this is the thing that's missing in the church today. When you talk about commitment, you're really talking about agape love. And when we look at the dearth of commitment to each other in the body of Christ, guys, it's a lack of love. It means we're not building a foundation on God's love. It means we're not rooted in the love of God in Christ. That's what it has to mean. So Paul's prayer is strength. So Christ is at the middle of your life so that you're rooted and grounded in love. And you get to verse 18. So that you may have strength, strength again, more strength, spiritual strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ. The love of Christ that's actually, Paul says, beyond measure. So strength again so that you can know the love of Christ. Love is a theme here, isn't it? Everything God's doing is He's doing... In fact, Galatians says, faith working through love. It sort of sums up everything. God's will, God's work in us is faith working through love. And that's the same thought here. If I stand on the shore of the sea, and let's say it's a beach and it's all the way down, and I, I look down the beach one way as far as I can, and I see the breakers coming in, 
I look down the beach the other side, as far as I can, as far as my eye can see, and the breakers coming in. And then I look out over the waves of the ocean to the line of the horizon. I see everything I can see. My mind's taking in everything I can about that ocean, right? I see as much as I can in every direction. But have I measured the ocean with my eye? I've only taken in the bit that my eye can see. The ocean's deeper, it's broader, it's further out than my eyes can see. But Paul's prayer here is, on one hand, he says, you can't measure God's love. But the other is, you should be able to take in as much as you can. So as we're standing on the sea, we're taking in as much of the ocean as we can. And Paul's prayer here is, we should take in as much of the love of God, immeasurable on one hand, but our goal should be to take in as much of that as we can. That we see God's love and then God's love becomes a part of who we are. So it's to take in, it's to know God's love. How about that next slide, Aaron? So you've got this progression. So strengthened by the Spirit, our heart is Christ's home. We grow from the love of Christ, strengthened to know the love of Christ. Now look at verse 19. This is the end for the believer of where Paul's progressive prayer takes us. He says, so that you may be filled up with the fullness of God Himself. Paul's prayer all leads to verse 19, that you may be filled up with the fullness of God Himself. The Greek for fullness is pleiro, and it's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament. In Galatians it says, in the fullness of time God sent His Son. When the time had been filled up for the Messiah to come, that's when Jesus came. If you're talking about a fishing net, pleiro means the net is crammed full of fish. So it's filled up as full as it can get. So if you think in these terms, if your life and mine is a glass, it's a cup, and, and the cup is your personality, and it's your history, it's your bents, it's your spiritual gifts, but it's empty because it's a glass. So if you took that glass that is your life, and then you stuck it, that empty glass, under Niagara Falls, that glass would be filled up with Niagara Falls. Now, Niagara Falls hasn't been emptied and never will be. But you'll be filled with Niagara Falls. And that's the thought here. Paul's prayer progressively gets to this thing that the cup that is your life ends up being filled with the life of God Himself. Now, guys, this is mind-blowing. Who would have thunk from the creation account that the creature would end up being filled with the life of the Creator. But that's the thought here. That you're no longer just a creator, a creature and you're no longer just a child of God, but the life of God Himself fills you up and overflows you. That's where this prayer goes for believers. That's a pretty noble concept, isn't it? The end to which Paul's prayer goes is that we're filled with the life of God Himself. That's a little bit like John 17.3. You remember Jesus said, this is eternal life, or this is life to the ages. Life that never ends is to know God and Jesus whom He sent. That real life is to be in this vital relationship with God Himself. I know God. I've taken Him in. God's part of me and I'm part of God. Now, we're not divine. God shares His life with us. We don't become God. But God's life fills us up and overflows us. 
In fact, if you look in the book of Acts, you remember in those initial chapters especially, the text says multiple times, it says the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. One, I think it's chapter 5, says, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Filled with the Spirit. Well, Paul's prayer, that filling was temporary. So if you can be filled, you can be emptied in the sense, and that's what you see in the life of the church there. But Paul's prayer is that the fullness of the Spirit becomes our permanent status or, or the status that tends to be true of us normally, that you're filled up with the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer, filled with the Spirit. Work through a couple things with me as we wind down. Um, if we feel spiritually weak, we need to remind ourselves that God is waiting to give us strength and there's no limit on His power. When you plug into God, there's no limit on the power there. Do I feel spiritually weak? Some of us are living life as if Jesus is texting us and we're deciding whether to text back. He's not the center of who and what we are. We have a line of communication and sometimes we check in and sometimes we don't. But it's Jesus at the center of our existence and being. Some of us are not living in the soil of God's love. And that's why, friends, we tend to be less than loving because we're not drawing our life, our source, from God Himself. If you look at yourself and say, I'm less than loving, uh, we say, well, that represents where I've been drawing my nourishment. That's where I've been planted. I haven't been planted in the soil of God's love. And I do think, again, this is just absolutely key for the church today. It's a loss of love. Or sometimes, too, it's not that we're not filled up, but we're filled up with other things. For instance, we're filled up with sports and hobbies and other interests, all of which are absolutely fine in themselves. It's just that they're, they're not good substitutes for the life of God Himself. Uh, there's a passage in Revelation 3, a uh, great passage. You know, the letters to the churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The last church Jesus addressed is Laodicea. And that's the one where, do you remember graphically, he's at the door knocking? It's the church, and he's at the door knocking. He's not in the center. He's outside. He's saying, would you like me to come in? Maybe like the church today. But when he talks to them, he says, this is what you guys say to yourselves. You say, we're rich. We've got it all. We have need of nothing. And guys, the church today, especially in the West, materially, we have lots of stuff, right? Families, we have lots of stuff. And so, like them, some of us might be saying, hey, we're great. I've got the life we wanted. I've got the car I wanted, the wife, the husband I wanted. I've got the kids. i got all the stuff. And Jesus says to that church, well, actually, no, you're not, you're not wealthy in the way that counts. You're really pitiable, he says. You're poor. You're not rich. You're wretched. You're not well off. You're blind. And, by the way, you have no clothes on. Spiritually. Spiritually. So they say, we have gold, and Jesus says, no, you have fool's gold. They say, we're wealthy, Jesus says, no, you're actually in poverty. See, because it's not that they don't have stuff, they have the wrong stuff. They don't know the value of the stuff they have in Christ, so they don't treasure it. They don't live out of that wealth that God has provided for them. This ends at verses 20 and 21. For the believer, the end of the prayer is verse 19. For our experience, it's verse 19, that we're filled up with the fullness of the life of God. For God, though, the prayer continues to Paul's consummation here in those last two verses when he says, 
to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that great? Paul says the end of all of this should be the glory of God. Now, guys, we we pray before pretty much every service here. We pray that God would be glorified. And, you know, in Christian lingo, to the glory of God, it can be pretty shallow, glib talk to the glory of God. (laughs) My life is out there, but I come in and and I say to God be the glory. Well, you know, maybe or maybe not. But that's Paul's thought. When God's purposes are fulfilled in us, when we know what we have and we value what we have, God is glorified because the mystery of Christ is being fulfilled. Jews and Gentiles are coming together in one new family. They're growing up in the love of God. They're displaying the life of Christ, and God is glorified through that. Fanny Crosby wrote a lot of songs. This is part of one. She wrote, To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may come in. And you remember the refrain. Praise the Lord. You can almost not sing it. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. That's to the glory of God. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory because of the great things he has done. That's Paul's prayer here. It all ends with God's glory. So we need to think deeply, guys, not a little, but a lot. God, what have you given me? What's my inheritance as a Christian? What have you given me? Do I know what's mine in Christ? Do I know the value of what's mine in Christ? Is the fullness of the life of God filling me up and overflowing me to others? Because when it is, when that's true of you and I and our families and the church, the end of all that is God is glorified. It's the very best thing that can happen. Father, thanks that you provided for us richly all things to be enjoyed. God, help us to make the ultimate joy in our lives, our passions, our desires, our pursuits, you yourself. Thanks for your Holy Spirit living in us, communicating the life and love of Christ. God, convict us where we are out of uh, your will in our life, where we're not drawing our nutrition and the essence of our being from the soil of your love. God, help us to be a place that you are glorified because your life is filling us up and overflowing us. In Jesus' name, amen.